Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is our podcast covering 25 of our favourite movies from any given decade. We are currently doing Volume 4, a miniseries covering movies from the 1980s. This is Episode 81, where we are covering Ridley Scott's Blade Runner from 1982. And I am joined, as always, by Matthew Waters. Matthew Waters, did you not die this week from how <laughs> goddamn hot it was? I love how much we're committed to dating all of our episodes between, like, you know, recording before the lead actor passes away to, like, commentary on the weather to, like, memes. Um, yeah, it was insufferably hot. Just ridiculous. And when you've got fluffy creatures living in your house, you have to devote, like, all of the cold resources to them and you just have to suffer kind of thing. Luckily, um, our cats were, like, perfectly happy, more right. or less. We just kind of, like, put lots of water around the house for them to do and made yeah. sure they stayed in the room with the fan. You just wish... I mean, you always wish they could communicate, but it's like, look, I've given you a cold thing that's hot. Just go and take advantage of it. And they just kind of, like, look at it and they're like, oh, I guess that's cold. I'll be over here warm. I'm like, no, just go and drink the thing or lie on the thing. Just stay alive. That's all I want you to do. I did abandon <laughs> all the fluffy things in my house on Tuesday to go sit in my air-conditioned office. Yeah, I, I just... The, the journey to get there. Fine in the morning. The walk home mm. afterwards was awful. Oof. But none of that's got anything to do with Blade Runner, unless we ascribe to the idea that we will ruin the planet by the time it we was, get to 2019. It was probably really hot in Blade They all look very sweaty at all times. So. They did. Although even it is snowing at one point. It is, but it was three years ago the events of Blade Runner took place. And don't yes, we remember 2019 has really turned out exactly as predicted. So many things, you know, sci-fi of yesteryear that just, they just didn't quite put it far enough out, even with it being, you know, well, I mean, I guess it's coming from I mean, the future the, at that point. That's the fascinating thing is like when you have all these kind of like people in the 1950s. I mean, like Android's Dream of Electric Sheep comes out in 1968, which is the novel yes. that this movie is based on. But when you're doing stuff in like the 50s and 60s to do with sci-fi, you're looking at what the progress of human history has been in your lifetime, and you're going like, "Wow, who the fuck would have thought that we would have gone from not being able to fly a plane to going to the moon within mm -hmm. this time frame? Imagine what the human race will do in the next 50 years." And then we just kind of like stuck our fingers up our ass and did fucking nothing. <laughs> I feel I feel that's a thing I heard on it might have been like Rooster Teeth podcast or something but it was like some comment about how like there was a ridiculous amount of technological advancement over a sort of 20-30 year period and then things have actually I mean it seems like we've invented all these wonderful amazing things in recent history but really like if you compare the pace, we have slowed to this real crawl, where it's like, yeah, like you say, like going from like viable cars in every home to we're on the fucking moon. And then it's like, well, we've got electric ones, but they're kind of shit, and a lot of them blow up, and they don't go very far. <laughs> I think the thing that's kind of like fucked us more than anything is is the presence of the internet. Kind I mean, of that's like, the big one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, we've, we've obviously gone from this kind of like massive exterior idea of like progression to we're going to refine this little thing that get, connects us to everyone at the cost of kind of everything else. And there's obviously been like huge medical advancements in the last 50 years, but we've, we've definitely not focused on refining the ability for everyone to fly in a flying car as this movie kind of kind of shows or yeah. i mean it is funny to see the things that they do get kind of right like the idea of like there will be video calls but you'll only be able to do a video call from a stationary payphone is, <laughs> is kind of hilarious in this yeah. movie nothing resembling the internet nothing resembling a mobile phone you can't go to a centralized database to find stuff out you have to go somewhere to like get this information and you like need an operator to, to connect to a person and all that and like you know you look at star trek they have the tricorders, you know, the, this magic device that anything the plot needs, it does. And it's like, now we all just have one. It's called an iPhone. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the inescapable thing is 
it shares visual influence with something we already covered in The Fifth Element. And yes. They are both riffing on Mobius. So you are seeing this similar sort of high-rise skyscrapers, giant corporate logos, flying cars, all of that stuff it has in common. Though they share an aesthetic, they feel so, so different in that like, Fifth Element is so bright and vibrant and, and, and Blade Runner is just dank as hell. And like they, they both rock, <laughs> despite being so similar, but having that like key sort of mood difference. I but... have to assume so much of that comes from just the, the temperament of their directors. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, like Ridley Scott is just this kind of like gruff, grumpy like, fuck, <laughs> grumpy fuck who hates rich people from the north of England, who's mm-hmm. like grown up in this thing and finally gets to be like the working class genius of film in this period of time. Even though absolutely fascinating career, which we will have to dive into because like this mm-hmm. is our first Ridley Scott, which is yeah. kind of funny. But like obviously there is a growing idea that Ridley Scott has three good movies. Nah, not quite. I like The Martian. I think it's an incorrect opinion, but obviously a lot of people go, it's Alien, it's Blade Runner, it's Gladiator, and everything else is kind of like, take it or leave it. He is a guy who kind of like, hit his peak in his first three movies, and then he lucked out and did Gladiator a while later, and then after that, he's kind of just got this like, really kind of like, hit or miss run later on in his career. He's made one of the bad Robin Hood. Did he make the most recent Robin Hood? He made the 2010, there has been one since. Oh no, oh okay. He didn't make the Eggsy one, he made the... He made the the Russell Crowe. That's the one. I, I hear it's bad. I think all Robin Hood movies are bad. It's fine. Like, okay. it's Except Men in Tights, obviously. Except Men in Tights. But yeah, like, you, you just look at his career and it's like, Gladiator into Hannibal, Black Hawk Down, Matchstick Men, Kingdom of Heaven, A Good Year, American Gangster, Body of Lies, Robin Hood, Prometheus, The Counselor, Exodus Gods and Kings, The Martian, Alien Covenant, All the Money in the World, The Last Duel, House of Gucci, and the upcoming Napoleon. And that's missing out all his 90s stuff. But like, right. well, everyone, a... everyone seems to really love The Last Duel. Last Duel um, fucking rocks. Yeah, I, I have it queued up to watch but you know there, there are some things in there that you know i think i need to be mentally prepared for <laughs> um you know i found the beginning of american gangster intensely dull but i know people that really like that movie there are directors we've covered who have fewer good movies than ridley Scott. yeah <laughs> it's, just, it's just it's just that weird thing where it feels like a lot of people go he's kind of it's, Are you on Team Prometheus, by the way? I, I'm firmly on Team Prometheus. Okay, I think okay. Prometheus is like low-key kind of good movie when you put it in the context of Prometheus comes from the point of view of like, what if we sent all our Elon Musks into space to go find aliens? Yes, and so then like, let them come back. So like, so like, everyone kind of goes like, why would they take their helmet off? Why would they go over to the, like the weird penis vagina snake? And it's like because because he's an intensely dumb human being. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> These are the ones who have the money and the kind of like lack of self awareness to want to go off into space to go explore this yeah. shit. Of course, they're going to be the dumbest motherfuckers alive. What if though humans were the aliens? You know. And we let Noah Hawley make it. He's doing that set in the modern day, and I'm like, oh. Oh, is he? Oh, okay. I don't understand what he's doing. Alien, though, fucking great movie. We're not doing the 70s, we're doing the 80s. That's one of those where it's like, okay, if we did a 70s, here are the locks, and it's like, well, Alien, obviously. Yeah. It's just funny that, like, Alien and Blade Runner kind of cement Ridley Scott as this kind of visual effects kind of, like, driven guy, where obviously Alien is a movie made intensely in the, the, the vein of kind of, like, they're kind of up against it like we can't show the alien that much because it kind of looks a bit shit and and yet 
art through triumph. Yeah, triumph through struggle. That's what I'm trying to get at. Um, yeah, but like when you get to 1979, everyone's idea of space is kind of like it's it's Dune, it's Flash Gordon, it's Star Wars, which are all kind of a little bit clean, a little bit kind of like they're not scuzzy. And the alien sterile, comes out and yeah, it's like yeah. we've stuck a bunch of working class people on a spaceship and we're going to murder them all one by one. Which is which is obviously like again the ethos of the entire Ridley Scott career. He's a working class man from the north of England who <laughs> hates rich people. Yeah, and I think you see it in Dick's work as well. Uh-huh. And Philip K. Dick's work as well. The idea that with remarkable technological advancement also comes like a severe like erosion of a sector of society kind of thing. And, and I, he didn't invent dystopia, but you know he is a, a huge player in the dystopian sphere. You see that in this movie where like you know oh they have these wonderful things and look where fucking Tyrell lives in this ridiculous pyramid of of soft pillows and candles and shit. And then look how the normal people live. And there's literally a class divide in this movie where like it all feels so lived in the the final section of this movie in the in the hotel where um where jf sebastian it's so run down and stuff like that it's all and it's like rich people abandoned the surface world and it's now being run by criminals and the the lower class essentially yeah everyone else has gone to live in the massive fucking skyscrapers so i'm gonna mention batman twice for very good reason one william sanderson who plays sebastian basically plays the exact same character in an episode of Batman, in two episodes of Batman, but he invents the AI Hardak, and he's like a roboticist, and he's got all these little dolls that he's brought to life, and they're his friends, and he's got, and then he, when he gets out of that business, he gets into farming, and he uses his technology for like really good farming, and it's like, you, you just got the guy from Blade Runner to play the same guy in your cartoon, and I respect it. So that's really fun. And then obviously, Batman Beyond, like many, many, many things, cites Blade Runner as a, as a huge influence on, on the design of quote-unquote Neo-Gotham, a term they never once use within the canon of the show, but has become the like de facto name for where they live. But anyway. I think there is reason to say that like any movie we've ever covered on this podcast, mm-hmm. apart from maybe The Dark Knight, which you've covered on the <laughs> yeah, podcast, yeah, yeah. this might be the most influential movie. Yeah. Just, in mean, terms, just in terms of like aesthetics and what it does for like absolutely. an entire genre of, of cinema. And just to say this up front, for a long time I was not really a Blade Runner guy. It's more like I get it, and I think the the stuff I respond to is is the aesthetic, is the vibe, is the tone, which you can take for granted because we see this all the time. But like again, this is the originator. This is what everyone is riffing on. This this effortlessly perfect visual design, the iconic the geisha advert, um, you know, this this giant face in the sky kind of thing, and it's just immediately recognisable, and, and a hell of an aesthetic. And... So, like, talking about aesthetics, let's do yeah. some context around this. So, obviously, yeah. I'll let you read through what the Best Picture nominations were in a minute, but at the Oscars, this is nominated for two awards. It's nominated for Best Visual Effects, and it's nominated for Art Direction. Best Art Direction, which kind of crazy loses to Gandhi. I understand they're recreating an era of history, but I feel like there's recreation, and and then there's creation, and one of them is an awful lot more impressive than the other. Absolutely. But they're all um, just going to go for the, yeah. the wanky and, and, thing, aren't they? And visual effects, it loses to E.T. And obviously E.T. is a huge, huge, huge accomplishment in terms of visual effects. Like, E.T. is a crazy, impressive thing that they've done. It's insulting that Blade Runner, Blade Runner is nominated and doesn't win, and the thing isn't even nominated. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Oh, God, what a one-two punch of... Uh... 
of sci-fi heavy hitters. But like that's the thing is like you've got the thing which is kind of like the pinnacle of practical effects, like mm. in cinema ever potentially, is just an insane display of kind of like what you can do with animatronics and makeup and all this kind of stuff. And then Blade Runner is is obviously pushing. It's not doing CGI, but it's pushing what you can do filmically to make things look more lived in and all the rest of it. And like I mean the, the effects on the cars. Obviously we've seen Star Wars. We know that you can do this stuff, but just this is like peak miniatures, peak like vibes and stuff like that. Like the Vangelis score not being nominated for the best score mm. is is also fucking crazy. Like yeah, it's so just... good immediately as well. In seconds, the the vibe of the damn thing is is dripping on on the screen, and, and and you can hear it and feel it, and it's it's incredible. And you know, just little touches like every goddamn room anyone is in, you are constantly seeing like spotlights, whether it be from passing flying cars or like the police surveillance state, that kind of thing. And it's an easy thing for them to do, but it like it connects up the the shots of the city with the actual you know, it makes it feel real. It it doesn't feel it's not like in a lot of the mo- of modern movies where you get this stock footage aerial stuff and then now we're on a sound stage and I know we're not in the same place. And they're not here either. Like this is all it's just a little thing they can do to make it feel like, oh, I I believe that the city I saw earlier is outside that window. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason this is such a vibe movie, and it is funny. Before we I let you run wild on on Oscars and box office, like we watched the international theatrical cut for this movie. Yes, this that's an incredibly great. important thing to cl- to give as a disclaimer up front, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, because that's the one that was available on streaming. I own it, but we wanted to watch the same version heading into it, so we like we we chose a version that was streaming to to be the one that we were going to watch so it's international theatrical which is like the one that's got all the violence in it but still got the voiceover essentially yeah i'm kind of of the opinion i get it with director's cuts when people are i'm not saying i'm team taika but to an extent you do have to talk you have to let the thing that was released stand and comment on it as it exists and you can have all the best intentions in the world but like you know like everyone tells me the final cut is like the version no more cuts this is the one it's the best version available and we probably should have watched it for this as well I, 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 just... have, I have seen the final cut and the final cut is my favorite version of it yeah. especially because of and and what i want to bring up now is all those kind of like establishing shots of mm-hmm. of the ship going through the city and like the guy show billboard and all the rest of it and the evangelist score the vibes are so improved by losing the harrison voiceover because the harrison voiceover <laughs> can we can we just talk about that because when you first hear it you're like wow harrison ford's such a good actor but he might be the worst narrator i've ever heard in my life and then you learn that he basically did it at gunpoint under <laughs> extreme protest and just threw everyone who was writing all of the voiceover under the bus and it's not the same writers that write the movie and it's just like they just brought me page after page and each one is worse than the last and I hated the damn thing and every story about how this prickly production and how much he hated making Blade Runner he's like in hindsight I just hated the voiceover stuff and it's like yeah and I can hear that in your voice because you are basically going what if I don't even act he comes in too hot on every line he sounds too chipper that, that's just... the thing is it's so completely different to the vibe of his character any other point like he isn't even giving it like a noirish draw he's just like i was out one day and i did this i mean i assume like with most things it's a studio assuming an audience are dumb and like let's just say the things that you can see are happening yeah i mean uh, that's the thing is like ridley's like we explained all of this in the fucking movie you just need to pay attention to the movie and the studio's like what if people don't pay attention because you've got a five minute aerial shot of someone like just flying their car around and it's like (laughs) fair (laughs) 
I can I can understand why you might think that, but you're ruining the movie a little bit by doing yeah, that. It's oppressive. It's bad. It's 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 awful. Um, I will also say, like, I mean, the most famous sci-fi property of all time did in a pre-credits wall of text, so I can't really criticize too much. But like, they are putting an awful lot of exposition into an opening. Here's some text on the screen, and like, you know, I can read, and I'm an adult, and I can remember things. But... I think the funniest part of that pre-scroll text, though, is that they use all these words to describe things, and then with about two minutes in the movie, they're using completely different terminology to describe all the things that they're talking about. Yeah, in the movie. you're hearing like skin jobs and stuff like that. Like, Sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, it's like you you've just used the word replicant and Blade Runner, and you're not going to use either really throughout the rest of the movie. Okay, well, okay. Blade Runner as a term is such a funny thing because like you know it's such a distinct title, and like he is literally our Blade Runner, but you like hear the words like twice, and it's just like ah oh, okay. Sorry, I, I I guess I need to talk about the Oscars. Yes, let's do let's now. do the one two punch of doing Oscar box office and then we'll move on to discussing the various cuts of this movie because I think that is also important to go into. Yeah. So you mentioned it already Gandhi is, is is the darling wins best picture, wins best director for Richard Attenborough best picture nominees also included E.T. also mentioned. Missing Tootsie, The Verdict, I know that the Phillips household are devastated we're not covering Tootsie but <laughs> hey there you go. Ben Kingsley wins Best Actor. He would go on to do his best work in Iron Man 3, which is in the superhero pantheon. And you should go listen. Meryl Streep wins Best Actress for Sophie's Choice. Very safe, I think. Um, I mean, that's the thing is, like, when you consider all the other movies that are coming out this year and the ones that kind of, like, stick around in the consciousness, mm-hmm. not having Blade Runner or, or The Thing would feel kind of, like, crazy in hindsight. But again, the critical response to both of those was kind of, like, relatively muted. Right. And I, that's another one. I feel there's so much you need to mention when talking about this. Yeah, not well received at all at the time, and it's like the advent of home video and, and DVD technology and the various new cuts that existed that give it this sort of cult status, and then people are like, oh, this might be a top five sci-fi thing ever. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously E.T. is kind of like the one there where it's like, that one is also a change in cinema, and like you feel like, even in hindsight, you go like, E.T. probably should have won that best picture that year, even if like Gandhi is... But Gandhi like, is just like cooked in a lab to win Oscars. Yeah, so. I mean that is that is the kind of the main issue with it. And you like look at the best director nominations, and it's basically identical to Best Picture, except they've swapped out Das Boot for for the missing. Yeah. It's got the same issue that you get with Best Actress, where like only one of the five nominees for Best Actress is from a Best Picture nominee. Just that subtle current of sexism that kind of like runs through almost all the Oscars, where the <laughs> parts for women aren't in the movies that we think are the best pictures for that year. I mean, even in the ones that I listed, like you don't get a Best Actress nominee from The Thing or Blade Runner. I mean, there's, there's one woman in the thing and it's a computer voice you know and and talking about it not being well received at the time that's also reflected in the money it does crack the top 20 for the year at 19 with 39 and a half million dollars that puts it well below i mean number one et by a long long way with just shy of 800 million tootsie an officer and a gentleman gandhi first blood not gandhi first blood gandhi First Blood. <laughs> um, I would watch Gandhi first blood. Rocky Three, Poltergeist, Porky's, Frequent Punching Bag of Ben Phillips, Porky's, Star Trek Two, The Wrath of Khan, Dust Boot are your top ten. Blade Runner just ahead of Sword and the Sorcerer and just behind The Dark Crystal. Um, a decent year of movies, but like a it's... lot of stuff that like everyone has like seen, but I wouldn't say it, it's it's like elite stuff. It's stuff everyone's it's, it's like, funny. I like that. It's funny when you get kind of like what you're a you're a decade removed from Godfather Part Two and you're a couple years removed from Star Wars Episode Five at this point. The proliferation of sequels that is starting to come, where like Godfather Two feels like this is a legitimization of what a sequel in movies could be, rather than like you know like they, you wouldn't normally get 
sequels to movies in cinema you'd normally get these are the same characters they're going on a different adventure it's not a sequel we're not going to acknowledge the plot of the previous movie but now you've got like star trek 2 rocky 3 you've got the start of first blood you poltergeist obviously has has other movies i think there's sequels to porkies isn't there yeah yeah I no, definitely. So. Uh, you've got um, airplane 2 this year as well airplane yeah, 2 the sequel two. Friday the 13th, part 3. Like, Death just... Wish 2, Halloween 3, Grease 2, Amityville 2. Goodness. And obviously Conan gets a, gets a sequel as well. It's a weird year. It's it's kind of a good year for genre movies, though, mm-hmm. when you go through it. Like, E.T., Star Trek 2, Conan the Barbarian, Blade Runner the Thing. Like, that's a really strong kind of I mean, like lineup of like summer summer blockbustery type things it's what i've been saying it's what's made uh, the 90s and the 80s volumes of this podcast so much more enjoyable look at all this genre stuff we have to talk about and, and look at the tonal whiplash we get from going to horror movie comedy movie thriller family adventure sci-fi more sci-fi but a different type of sci-fi we've got a dark comedy coming next week to see if you can figure it out before the end yeah we're all over the place and i love that i like that we can you know talk about things like jurassic park in the 90s and 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 it's not all just you know just kind of <laughs> grim dark gloomy i mean that's the thing i mean could... those are good movies obviously but it's just fun to bounce around like yeah like it, it was fun like you could tell we perked up when we got into kind of like more genre storytelling like doing something <laughs> like the handmaiden was infinitely yeah. more exciting than like another kind of like personal intimate drama or whatever yeah. like something that's got hinchcock influences you're right boyhood does suck um <laughs> so that's money that's oscars talk to me about cuts because i've seen a version without narration i remember i have and i've seen this version i, I think that might be right it, though <laughs> so if you've watched a version without narration you've either watched the director's cut or you've watched the final cut i'm i can't say which one you probably watched but those are like the directors. two so let's run through them in order so you've got the, the work print prototype version which is the one that kind of sets the fire under people's asses to kind of like actually find or get new cuts of the movie so basically that one leaks in kind of like the early 90s does a run of screenings in la and san francisco and basically people kind of go like wow this has actually improved the original blade runner can we get something interesting from this and obviously then that gets picked up and what allows the director's cut and the final cut to eventually get made but the versions that get released are the u.s theatrical cut and the international theatrical cut which are basically identical in terms of what their movies are except the theatrical cut is an unrated version which has more violence in it so like all the gunshot scenes and all those kind of things are just slightly extended uh, in the international cut because obviously europe were less prudish at the time yes. Um, yes we can we can deal with a little bit more blood that's the version that kind of gets spread around it's the one that's on the criterion release and the 10 year anniversary there's a couple of like shitty ones which don't need to talk about which are the san diego sneak preview version and the u.s broadcast version which are just a little bit compromised versions of the movie that aren't particularly interesting to discuss and then yeah, the u.s it, broadcast version like 10 minutes long it's 114 so they cut like five minutes. again the violence is okay. just cut out Tips, that one and there's violence, no yeah, exactly. and then director's cut was not done with ridley scott's approval removed yes. the it's over. this famous like director's cut without the consent of the director. <laughs> yes, removes the voiceover, includes some of the dream sequence involving the unicorn. Yes, um, that and will need then also, and then also loses the final scene where like Harrison Ford in the voiceover goes like, even though we were told that she would die in four years, we actually found out that she lost the ability. She actually had the ability to live forever. <laughs> I actually love it. Like, it's really bad. And every time he starts talking, I'm like, how did they release this? How did they look him in the eyes while he was giving this under protest performance? And I'm like, 
Yeah, we'll put that in the movie. It's so funny, though, because, like, Ed James Olmos' last line in the movie is literally just, like, she's not going to last much longer. And then, like, Harrison Ford just goes, like, and then she lived forever. Like, <laughs> she died on the way back to his own planet. Uh, yeah, and then yeah. Final Cut is basically the director's cut plus more of the unicorn, essentially, and then, like, yeah. remastered stuff. The unicorn is, like, the thing, essentially, that, that differentiates right. so Final his... Cut from director's cut. So here we are with another thing that must be... Dis- There's going to be just no discussion of the movie. It's all just going to be context. To be honest, the movie is almost entirely vibes. Yeah. Like, the is. plot can be summed up in kind of five minutes. This this is so much more of an interesting, like, textual piece in terms of... A, it's a masterclass in terms of, like, actual discussing director's cuts. Because I feel like this is one of the few times where the director's cut improves the movie. This isn't a case of Lucas tinkering with the movie 20 years after it came out because he wants to try and align it with whatever he's trying to do at the moment or like special effects have got better so i can make the movie look like i wanted yeah, it to yeah, yeah. it's not spielberg removing the guns from the hands of the soldiers in et and putting in flashlights these are substantive things that actually change the texture of the movie and make it more interesting to discuss so deckard yes is he a replicant Ridley scott thinks he is i Harrison know Ford does i prefer the idea he's a human and I do. I I feel that way because of the ending. I prefer the idea that the man that is not a real. He's more human than human. He has like a poetic warrior's soul, and he is his physical superior as well because he makes the jump and lifts him up and everything. And like, what is it to be human if this man has can give this monologue and talk about tears in the rain and 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 all of this stuff? While our human protagonist is kind of this like incredibly flawed man and if you then just go but he is also a robot man i don't know what i get from that thematically by comparison that's just always been my thought i know that scott i think think is the more interesting one but i do think there is and it's something that blade run 2049 does which is there is something poetic about the idea of they're just having their own kind hunt each other down humans are so uninterested in the plight of these these replicants so that they're just setting each other up against each other it's time for me to drop a bombshell on you benjamin you've not seen blade runner 2049 i watched blade runner 2049 last night i watched it at midnight god yeah <laughs> i finished blade runner got ready for bed and everything i was like you know what? i really just want to watch 2049 even just a few minutes of it just to like get the feel I adore it. I think it's incredible. <laughs> it kind of fucked me up, I'll be honest. Like it's I think it's my favorite film I've seen in a long time. It's really fucking dope. I've got some issues with it. I think it's my least favorite of the Villeneuve kind of like sci-fi trilogy, but I think it's undoubtedly my favorite mode of Villeneuve. Like it's... I the, 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 the Dune Blade Dune Blade Runner and and Arrival are my three favorite of his movies. I think he works so well in that kind of environment. I mean, I don't know if we need to record a mini episode that is tacked on <laughs> As, as, as point five of this one talking about 2049 but like yeah I just have many things to say about all the clever decisions they made with that in addition to just I I, I think the vibes are better too I it's, think it's, he's it's, a better like, visual filmmaker <laughs> It's the thing that I really enjoyed when watching the 2049 in the cinema is mm. we watched Final Cut before 2049 came out just as like a prep. And then I didn't get to see 2049 for a few weeks. And I knew the movie was long and it is longer than Blade Runner. I think that's one of my yes. main ones is that like, obviously there's more plot to 2049, which I think mm. keeps you kind of like strung along a little bit better, but it is an hour longer for not too much more payoff. I don't I think guess. it needs a ton taken out, but yeah, long, long movie Matt is, is, is also of that opinion, but um, um, yeah, I mean, the bombshell was more that, like, I figured you would assume I haven't seen it. And, like, it came out 
I'm not a huge Blade Runner guy. I respect it. I wasn't like, oh my god, they're making a sequel. It came and went. I didn't really pay any attention to any of the discussion around it. I knew there were people who had hot takes that it's better than the original and that gets them shouted at. So I just sort of, for a whim, watched it and kept watching it. And yeah, I, I honestly, it's, it's, I'm, I'm shooketh. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm just, <laughs> the thing I'm so shocked about about it is this is Warner Brothers in 2017, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, Warner Brothers in 2017 releasing an almost three-hour-long movie that has the exact same vibes as a movie from the 80s. And I think that's what's so shocking about it, is you watch it and you go like, oh, they're going to have to like speed everything up, they're going to have to do all these things to kind of like modernise what Blade Runner is. Yeah. And they don't. They don't compromise at all no. on the tone, on the vibes or anything like that. It's a gorgeous fucking movie. I didn't realise this where um, Ana de Almas, like, well, not where she came from, she was she was famous in Spain, but it's, it's her big break in the West and like she yeah, learned yeah. English to be in the movie and shit. I, and, w- like, I promise I won't. Deacon cinematography is like yeah, fucking incredible oh, in that movie. Phenomenal. Every walk through like Vegas and, and, and it, oh, so good. Anyway, I, I promise I will pivot us back into original Blade Runner, but like something I found really fun is the way the two deploy their protagonists and in that so, I mean, spoilers on everything, obviously, but, like, with Blade Runner, the big thing is, this is obviously a human man, and then it becomes, or is he? And then 49 is obviously, like, this is a replicant, or is he actually human, or is he, you know, a hybrid, whatever, whatever. And Ryan Gosling has this inescapable... It's not wooden, because he's a really good actor, but, like, he has this coldness to him. So he's a great casting as a robot. And then, like, him starting to think, actually, am I human? Am I quasi? You know, am I hybrid and all that? And you start to get that emotionality coming through. The opposite with Harrison Ford, who is, like, the most everyman, everyman that has ever been put on screen. He's the only, like, regular guy in Star Wars, and he's everyone's favourite. And you're using him here as, like, you know, obviously he's a human. He's our most human man on Earth. And then, like, is the replicant technology so good that even Harrison Ford, who is the most authentically human person, might be a replicant? I, I, I just, I really love that dichotomy, personally. Yeah, anyway. no, I, I think it's, it's a really smart sequel, and I'm so glad it got made, because so many of these legacy sequels kind of suck. And yeah. I think Blade Runner 2049 is kind of, like, the best of them. I had that exact thought, like, of all the stuff they're, like... You know, taking out a storage that should have probably been left alone forever and rebooting, remaking, making a sequel to all that. It's probably the best one of those I've seen personally. And yeah, I, I'm shocked they pulled it off. Anyway, let's talk about original. Well, no, I do, I do want to talk about one thing. <laughs> okay, go. Which is the best thing in any Blade Runner media that they've ever done is the threesome in 2049, which I think is just. An incredible yeah. kind of like five minute sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, like a te- an insane technical thing. The stuff they do is recreating Sean Young. As I mean, you know, everyone's catching heat for like, you know, recreating dead people and holograms and de-aging people and all that. But like the way they bring Sean Young back. The fact, the, fact that she for is, the fact that she is like the acting coach as well. Like yes. she is, she yes. is involved. She is consenting to this. It's just, she can't be in the movie because the whole point is it's a, they're taunting Harrison Ford with, yeah. And then just like yeah, her I, eyes are green, like oh you fucker! <laughs> like what if they're not? What if it's just something he's saying? The the technical achievement of, of sort of blending and and uh, Mackenzie Davis and and um, Anna de Almas and and just the implications of like yeah this is truly what the world is now where we have this robot man having a threesome with a robot lady and an AI and I know they caught a lot of heat for the portrayal of women in, in 2049. I, I think it's a little bit blown out of proportion saying that like every woman is like a sex slave or, or, or a servant or whatever. It's like, 
there are more strong female roles in 2049 than there are the original. Kay's captain is a woman, and the badass assistant who is like, I'm the best one. It's a difficult thing to get into, and obviously there is a degree of intent there, of like, replicants are second-class citizens, they're literally slave labour, and like, you look at the positions that minorities are in in Blade Runner, the original, the way replicants are treated and stuff, and like, yeah, misogyny is a, is an aspect of dystopia, and then you look at original Blade Runner, and then how do we feel about the love scene? Because it's, it's very, very rapey, isn't it? It is. It's one of those things where, like, I don't want to prescribe onto it, but it's obviously one of those things where they're going, like, it's fine because she does want it. Yeah. It's just one of those things where it does, like, and I it's understand, how we get it, yeah, in this, in this situation, yes, she wants to go because she's so overwhelmed by kind of like all that's being conveyed to her but ultimately it is the thing that reinforces a culture of no means yes from a woman like mm-hmm. if, if a woman says no she's playing hard to get and i think yes. that's what and it's an so era of movies that are very much like this as well where like the man tries it on gets slapped sort of holds her quite aggressively and then forces a kiss that she then relents to and like family guy made the joke of like 46 no's and a yes means yes or whatever and like yeah it is a a dark sort of part of hollywood's past and and harrison ford has certainly been in a couple of those types of scenes but i mean they have a baby together it's real love they do (laughs) They do. Uh, obviously, Blade Runner twenty four nine impl- improves the sexual politics of that mm-hmm. time, even with yeah. the even with the issue with the women being what they are in that movie. I do think it's interesting how this is now the second Harrison Ford movie we're discussing for this miniseries. Mm-hmm. Both of the characters are definitely playing off of his actual persona. All three of them, even like obviously we, we haven't done Empire Strikes Back, but Empire Strikes Back is such an obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah unavoidable movie and kind of like the proof of this just fucking insane run that he is on that we we mentioned on Raiders of the Lost Ark where like he is in the middle of what he does Empire Raiders Blade Runner Return of the Jedi Temple of Doom in like a five year run and like Mm -hmm. he is just the biggest movie star on the planet playing two of the most famous characters and obviously Blade Runner is the blip in the middle of that but even then he gets to be in E.T. as well (laughs) (laughs) I feel it kind of falls in the middle of his grumpy things he does and doesn't care about Pantheon where like he aggressively does not care about Star Wars he hilariously it recently came out that he basically threatened Chris Pratt if he attempted to play Indiana Jones and then I feel Blade Runner he's like it's not one of my faves but like over time, he sort of softened on it a bit, and he acknowledges, "Yeah, we made a good movie. It was just frustrating to make." Like, and like, I mean, that's the thing is, and then he comes back to Blade Runner twenty forty nine, yeah, and you watch Blade yeah. Runner twenty forty nine, you think, "Oh, he showed up, and he's doing kind of like the he's Star Wars." As well. he, you think he's doing the Star Wars bare minimum, like he's only going to be in these Vegas scenes. He's he's doing a lot of dialogue. He's not getting involved in the action. Obviously, he's got the fight with with Gosling, and then the entire fucking final act of the movie is him in a like a car filling up with water, and yeah. you're like, "Jesus Christ, Harrison, you did not have to <laughs> put yourself through that for this movie." But yeah. I'm so happy. I, that he, he did. He rocks in it. Like, like again, like it's a thing we've talked about a lot, where you get these sort of legendary actors coming back for roles in. It's a lot of action and sci-fi where they just look a little bit sad and lost. And like he's fully in there, and he's got an emotional arc, and and yeah, he's great. Okay, so do you think Blade Runner twenty forty nine confirms or disproves that Deckard is a human or a replica? I assume that he's human, and that's how they reproduce. Because I think they have. I, I guess the other have... idea is he's another one of these long life replicants, and they. I mean, I guess that is what they're going for: is the replicants can reproduce, therefore 
before they should have full human rights and rise up and all that. Yeah, so and it should it, be it's too kind, of, it's but... kind of irrelevant if he's human or if he is a replicant in that situation. But then it does go like 2049 seems to imply that, that Rachel is like the only right. one who's been improved like this. And then also we don't know if replicants can age. Is the other well, that's the other thing. Kind of like is, sidestep. Yeah, the other thing is, I would assume replicants don't age, even if they are long livid. And the fact that he's an old ass grey man tells me he's human. But who knows? I think it is the correct thing to do. But this is very much of the model of sci-fi, where we are not going to give you a full breakdown of how the biology of a replicant works. Like to pull off the idea that someone doesn't know they are, it suggests they sleep. They eat. They do all the things we do. But yeah, I mean, who knows? Like it does. He's living in like irradiated, sandstorm-covered Las Vegas by himself with limited supplies. So maybe replicants don't need to eat as much, and that's how he's survived. But there's also a dog there, and that probably does need to eat, unless it's a replicant dog, because he's like, ask him. Anyway, <laughs> so right, let's do the movie in a second. So first of all. Yeah. Have you read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Have you read any Philip K. Dick or anything like that? I have not. I have enjoyed many adaptations of his works, but I have not read any of his stuff. I also quite like... They made the Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep um, like miniseries. Mm. Um, I actually quite like that as well. It is interesting how different it is, because obviously they both kind of take the, the plot of there are six androids that need to be hunted down and kind of like springboard from there into their own things, but they're obviously very different fundamentally from each other. I mean, the funniest thing about Blade Runner is that all these versions cannot quite figure out what's happened to all six of them. Like, the version we watched <laughs> is explicitly incorrect, where there is just a lost replicant. He kills Zora. So at the beginning they say six escaped, one died yes. when it when it went to the thing, and then there oh, are four course, he needs to hunt course. down a kill. Yeah, so yeah. there's one that just isn't accounted for, which Stacker. the sequel Blade Runner 2, <laughs> which is a sequel to the movie, is all about this fifth replicant that doesn't exist in the in the thing. So they have to get people in, I believe, for the director's cut to re-record lines of dialogue to specify that two of them died um, <sighs> when they just, broke into the centre. Just say there's fucking five, man. <laughs> I don't know if we can go off on yet another tangent. No, like, tangents, all tangents. Okay. I think my biggest beef with the movie is they don't do enough with these replicants, like the, the, the four, specifically Roy. It's tricky because, you know, you don't want to over-explain everything, but, like, they hint at, like, all these incredible things he's seen and done and achieved, and that he's this revolutionary. And I just wish they did a little bit more with that, because he kind of just seems like a dude. Are you, pitch are you pitching the iRobot version of this? <laughs> like, you want to see Rutger Hauer starting, I'm not like, saying starting I like, a, like a, an army of, army of replicants and kind of, yeah, like, reuniting I mean, them? I'm not saying I need to see it. I just think that they could have done a little bit more with, like, why is he so special? Like, what has he done and seen? Why do they respond to him? Again, I don't think I do want to see it. I think it works better to join in media res and all that. But I don't know. I just I think he needs just a little bit more to him. He, all me. of all of his stuff is done through through monologues, and like mm -hmm. he doesn't even really start his monologues until he goes and confronts Tyrell. Because beforehand, it's all Deckard, it's all Rachel, it's all Tyrell and stuff like that. There's, yeah, they're kind of focusing on it, these characters. Yeah, and the the replicants very much are kind of backseated for so long, and yeah. then it, then it, then they get rid of two of them. And that's the other. So Quickly. Like, you're told very early we've got to hunt down these four it takes an hour to catch one of them and then you off two of them in like 10 seconds <laughs> i just think yeah they just need a little bit more 
going on. It's just one of these things where, like, because it is so beloved, fans are filling in their own gaps and, and, and they're finding meaning in the text to sort of ascribe more to them than is actually there. It feels there are just some gaps, is, is, is my feeling. And that, that was just something that always kind of got me a bit because i mean at the time people were like oh there's not enough action and i i don't agree i like the way action is presented in blade runner where like guns mean something and it is just ugly kind of chasing and and (laughs) opening fire in public places they got that part right about 2019 that's just my my minor quibble is i wish the replicants were a bigger deal i think press is incredibly engaging as a as a as a visual design darahan's really good in that role Like, she's so good like easily the most engaging of the four I, I I know I know Roy gets the big monologue at the end and is fucking smashing his face through walls and shit but like yeah Pris is just really uh, hypnotic IMO like with the white the, the, the caked on white makeup the black across the eyes and doing all the gymnastics like yeah there's a lot of like Harley Quinn to her almost um, yes yeah not... I, I would not be surprised if they came out and said that like Pris was a big influence over yeah. their design of the character okay. And just because of how influential and widespread this movie's impact is on so much of science fiction and genre filmmaking. But yeah, but yeah I mean, I mean... <laughs> again, the, the plot of the movie is super simple, which is basically Rick Deckard is a former police officer who's basically called in to hunt down these replicants. And then the first hour of the movie is more about him falling in love with a replicant who takes three times the amount of normal time it would take you to to figure out if they're a replicant yeah, or not. Yeah, so they, they, they have the, the, this... This test, called the Voigt-Kampf test, where they ask them a series of—they're all empathy questions. They pose them hypotheticals, and they're supposed to elicit very subtle emotional responses. And we see it right at the beginning with Leon. I love the performance there, where he's just picking holes in the in the hypothetical, and he's being incredibly pedantic about oh, which desert and like what's a tortoise and stuff like that. But yeah, they, they portray themselves as as not authentically human. He says it takes twenty to thirty questions generally to identify a replicant leon fucking shoots his interviewer after two but he meets rachel well he go he meets tyrell under the guise of you know finding out more and tyrell is like i want to see it give a negative before i feed it a positive so why don't you interview my assistant here rachel who's very clearly a human being with red eyes um <laughs> that's the bigger tell personally why are we bothering with any of this when they all very clearly have red eyes he asks her a hundred questions and it takes like a ages and ages and ages and then it finally proves that she's a human and i, I actually really like that as that's the the legacy of the movie is is the kind of well, what does it even mean to be a human and like if she can pass to this degree what do you give a shit if she's a human or not like i'm if she... so intrigued if you can figure out within 20 30 questions do you give up then on doing the void camp test after 20 30 questions or is the implication that you just ask the full suite of questions that's the thing i'm, I'm intrigued by because obviously he goes like she doesn't know is that because he was getting kind of like an inconclusive result which normally you would describe to a human across all this. We kept on having to ask questions until he got a confirmation one way or the other. Or is it a case of you always ask this full suite of... I think you stop as soon as you know it's a replicant because their job is to kill them immediately, so... But then surely you just go on forever if you know it's a human. Unless, again, it is that kind of inconclusive thing. Oh, right, yeah. I guess they don't ask a lot of humans. I mean, he gets asked, like, have you ever, and they use the terminology retired, have you ever retired a person, basically? And he says confidently, no, and it's sort of like, are you sure? But yeah, you know, you have Rachel, this this advanced prototype, 
like the, the four on the loose are Nexus sixes. I don't know if the implication is she's a Nexus seven because yeah, we end never, up with Nexus really, eight in forty nine. Twenty forty nine's got Nexus eights, and uh, and then it's implied that K might K is not K's not in the end naturally born, but there is something about him that seems different to all the others. There's all these comments about with you, I forget, and it's like, are, are you like a Nexus twelve or something? Like, anyway, uh, but yeah, she doesn't know she's a replica. And then he <laughs> shatters her world by telling her. I think the actual, the detective investigation, the mystery, the like trying to find the four of them is a little bit flimsy. IMO. Um, what do you mean? You don't believe in the photo machine where like, apparently every single photograph <laughs> ever taken contains the ability to refract light in such a way that you can look at different angles in mirrors? The most sci-fi aspect of the whole goddamn thing is the magical, the TV enhance, enhance and it is a, it's in perfect quality. <laughs> <laughs> but then it goes that step beyond by like, yeah, and we can figure out what was around the corner from this <laughs> photograph. <laughs> oh, and here's a lady with a snake tattoo, and we found a snake scale, and then we, the first person I ask about it knows exactly who made it, who knows exactly where it is, and oh, here's, here's Zora. And also, I said it when we did Raiders, Harrison Ford is clearly not afraid of snakes. <laughs> <laughs> he can say he is, but like, again, he is handling them, he is right up close to them, all that, and I would not do either of those things, regardless of the paycheck you wrote me to be in Blade Runner. The scene with Zora is so funny, because obviously <laughs> it's the 80s, and you've yeah. got a scene set in, I'm going to call it a ballet club, I'm not sure... I think the movie uh, Christian. Sure they but call it, seems, it a strip club. <laughs> yeah, it seems more burlesque though. Sure, sure. But then you kind of go the entire scene in this, and they're very tastefully shooting Joanna Cassidy. Like, mm. they're not showing her breasts. And until then, they just do. <laughs> until they just do. And you're just like, oh, okay, so you were. I, I don't understand. Why were you being very tasteful for kind of like five minutes of this scene? And then the moment all the makeups come off, it's just like, and now she's just topless for us. This. I'm I like, mean, okay. maybe that's. Maybe there's intent there. Maybe she is. We don't want people getting turned on by snake lady scales we want them turned on by like regular human boobs sure maybe there's also some sort of you know she is attempting to use her nudity against him i do love the little like inspector man voice he's putting on that's good bureaucratic nerd man oh they could drill holes and look at you through the (laughs) shoots her through the streets and just fucking murders her Yes, yes, in the snow. And it's all very well shot and everything, but like, yeah, like, is unmistakably a noir piece, what we call neo-noir, which is the context under which I studied at university um, when we were looking at noir and then neo-noir. Credited as one of the big... Is, I don't know if they the, claim it's the, the birth of neo-noir. Is that what they're yeah, saying? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think people have made that claim that it's the birth of neo-noir, but you know, like, it's one of those things where like you have to be careful how you talk about noir because it's not a genre, it's a narrative like device, and then all this nonsense. Which, which is so funny about the kind of, like, the voiceover, because voiceover <laughs> is so... Yeah. integral to kind of that, that early noir cinema telling and you can tell like there is a world in which you get the voiceover and it works I think if, just if the... I think if it's conceived with voiceover in mind it would be good if it was written to have voiceover rather than just clumsy exposition and saying what you see kind of shit being read under protest I think someone could absolutely write some some fun there. and like you almost wish that 2049 like made an attempt to like make good on that and we're like ah fuck it let's write some good narration but they they, they stay away from it and are not, unafraid of silence I mean again that was the other again it's it's so nice to watch a movie actually riff on its original yes at the time in such a way and just feel so interesting but and then 
again, I think there's another slight issue in the international cut where basically when Deckard is talking to, to his superiors and to, to Gap and stuff like that, he's visibly got the injuries from his fight with Leon that he hasn't yeah. had yet. Yeah, yeah. And I will also say the stuff with the other cops is quite messy. The ambiguous threat and like what is Gaff's deal with these little origami figures and, and the origami figures only really making sense when the unicorn scene happens and the unicorn gets deposited on his seat at the end in the final yeah. cut and the director's cut is kind of hilarious. In this movie, you kind of read it as he came to her he came to his apartment and didn't retire her so he's like giving them a chance to get away but obviously the entire meaning shifts when you have the unicorn scene and you start to question whether or not he knows what Deckard's dreams are absolutely and like I don't know it just it feels a bit of a weird little side thing I, I don't know it just, part of me feels it would work better if it was just as Blanchett referred to it they call it a blender which is when a character has like a, a random thing that they're like really obsessed with that doesn't really impact the plot at all I mean I get it you know like, it, like I, I'm all for like just, little environmental storytelling like, and set dressing you, and giving characters weird stuff but I don't know it just feels a little bit messier than the rest of it let's run through this kind of like final section here so yeah so like once once he's kind of like fought Leon after he's like killed it, it's very funny how quickly Leon just kind of shows up after he's killed Zora Zora shows up he has the conversation with the with the other detectives in the version that we watched and then Leon finds him and they just have a fight yep <laughs> and is dead at the end of it and I can't even when does he find out about J.F. Sebastian is it just that's another one where I think depending on your version you get a, a more clean explanation of that I think it's he's called to the murder scene of, of Tyrell and then I think Sebastian is dead there as well and then he goes oh, to yeah. Sebastian's apartment what do you think of the Tyrell Tyrell Roy scene I like it I, I think I think Rooker Hauer is proving his acting chops in that death scene where, you know, the kiss and then the, like, incredibly violent murder, but, like, the emotion on his face, like, you can tell he is devastated to be doing this. I think that works really well. I like the idea that, like, you know, these two geniuses are playing chess and Tyrell clearly has the upper hand and then, like, Roy, like, gives him the, <laughs> he's like, here's a winning move kind of thing. I think that's the other thing. Like, you know, he's going to his creator and, like, begging for more time and i'm just sort of like i i get it like you know he he's against this ticking clock and he's seen these wonderful things and he wants to tell his story and live more life but because i don't really know what he's seen and that he just gives up so quickly and just murders the guy i don't know from an acting perspective i think it's rooker howard's strongest scene in the movie yeah it, it is interesting because obviously it feels like he's punishing people for not giving him more life in kind yes. of like the run up to this, where it's like, well, if, if I can't get more life, then why should you? Mm-hmm. Feels like his response to Tyrell, which yes. is then when it becomes so interesting when the entire final kind of like sequence where after Deckard has, has shot and killed Pris and Roy is kind of like aliening Deckard through the house, like busting <laughs> through walls and like breaking the fingers on his hands so he can't even hold the gun properly and all the rest of it. Like, Becomes a bit of a clown for a couple of minutes. Yeah, yeah he's like he's like toying with him. But then ultimately, I, I don't know what it is that makes him realise that like Deckard is worth saving other than he's dying and he's like, well, what's the point in me doing this? I think it's supposed to demonstrate I have more humanity and compassion than you because with my final act, I will save you and say an incredibly poignant thing that is going to be quoted forever. Yeah, I mean, the fact that the fact that that, that line has got a Wikipedia page attached to it, like, that Tears in the Rain oh, is, is a 42 word. It's hyperlinked. <laughs> Tears in the Rain is a 42-word monologue consisting of the last words of the character Roy Batty from, from Blade Runner. That's where, for me, this only works if Deckard is human. Because it's like a, he's making a point. He's proving to him 
they're like, one, I can make this jump and I can lift you up because they have made me to be physically superior. But two, I am a warrior poet and I am more human than you. And I have more compassion as you will just off all of, all of us folk. And like, yeah, as you said, that becomes such a part of 2049. There's replicants hunting replicants kind of thing. And That's the other thing that kind of like it really works is none of the replicants start anything. Nope. Apart from Ty- but Deckard and Tyrell, they just kind of like want to live their life. Like they only come when people are, ag- are aggressive towards them. Like Chris only attacks Deckard because he shows up at their at where they're hiding out with a gun and is like explicitly looking for shit, whatever. And it's the same thing in in twenty forty nine, where like as you say, like Dave Batista's character is just perfectly happy to live out his life as a protein farmer. And then the moment they're trying to do a test on him, he's just like, "Well, I've been found out. I'm going to fight for my life because I want to live. Like I want yeah. to, I want to be, I want to just be left alone and do what I want to do. And humanity is chasing down these replicants for yeah, and saying the reason that your your models don't run is because you haven't seen a miracle. Like they've kind of like removed whatever humanity from you. But then you know it does end up that Kay has something about him that makes him more human than a lot of the others but yeah like this idea that like i run because i want to live and i i I am a valid being and i I would like to experience more life yeah i mean blade runner dope movie ridley scott obviously kind of channeling something whether or not you think he's just kind of like channeling a visual aspect or not i think it's undeniable like how influential this movie i do want to shout out jordan cronenworth who is the cinematographer on this movie just insanely amazing work he wins the battle best cinematography this isn't even nominated at the oscars as we've already discussed he does eventually get nominated for best cinematography for peggy sue getting married but i think the most important thing to point out that he did the cinematography for is stop making sense the jonathan demi talking heads concert mm-hmm. film i which, do desperately need to see that I know. which it looks incredible like yeah. it feels like blade runner in some regards i think it's okay. it's one of my favorite movies ever i think it's it's genuinely an incredible feat absolutely adore it but like huge props to him like I, I think that's my favorite piece of his cinematography work but obviously Blade Runner is just so fucking influential that it's kind of like impossible to to escape from Matthew do you want to do a quick kind of like five minute thing on 2049 I just it, I didn't expect to like it as much as it like not even like it I loved it I think it's better than the original I'm, I think I'm on that controversial camp I think probably because it has more time and because it has had decades to ruminate and and on the original and and all of this stuff but yeah I thought Gosling was incredible um he is a performer that like you know I am sometimes quite cold on and I didn't really consider that like this that's the by far the biggest movie he's ever done in terms of like the size of the production the mainstream attempt all of that yeah like, he's de- he's definitely not a guy who does blockbusters like it's, no. it's it when and when he does blockbusters this blockbusters they're always kind of weird like the kind of la la land into Blade Runner into First Man into this kind of like soft quietness yeah. for a few years and now he's going to come back with Barbie um, <laughs> although obviously he's got Grey Man on Netflix now yeah. which which they ran a trailer for like, as soon as like, I finished Blade Runner I was like no 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 <laughs> Truly, it fucked me up. I don't think a movie has fucked me up like that in quite a while. I was like, how is this so good? I'm intrigued to see what your thoughts are on Dune now, because obviously you really like to rival as well. Um, mm, I so I, I want I want to see your opinions on Dune, because obviously, like again, I think that's Villeneuve's best work is all his okay. science fiction stuff. I'm not like saying we need to do an addenda to an addenda and say, actually, I think 2049 over Arrival. I think I just about prefer Arrival, but like, yeah. And also, like, we talked about it before, that like it would be weird to cover a a sequel to something and not the original like Empire Strikes Back is not on this list I mean we have a soft no Star Wars rule anyway but like 
Empire should clearly be yeah. on the list, but like it would be weird to just jump in with Empire or whatever, or do Godfather 2 and not Godfather 1, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm not saying that we should go back in time and do 2049, but yeah, I, yeah, it fucked me up. I loved it. I loved so much about it. I loved thinking about it while it was happening and, you know, all the philosophical you go back to my 2017 list. And I'm now restructuring it. So, so thank you for that. Cause I did watch it as well last week after I did Blade Runner. So I need to, need mm. to go reconfigure my 2017 top movie yeah. list. Yeah, I didn't just, do it last week. It has no right to be that good. Is, 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 is my takeaway, really. But yeah, Blade Runner also. There's a reason it's been picked over for 40 years, and there's a reason it's on my university syllabus. Um, my partner, she did English literature, um, so they they covered Philip K. Dick, and they, they watched the movie, and you know it came up for like pastiche and what does it truly mean to be human, and does that even matter? Like, is authenticity actually? Is it in the fact that he's literally human, or he's literally a replicant? or is it it in the things he does that's all there for you textually in a movie where yeah I mean we just talked about the plot is like shaky at best but there's just so much to to take away from it it spawns so many things vibes wise it it, it really does kind of like excel even if it is just kind of like the the plot really is it's not even I feel like noirs tend to be really convoluted and this isn't even that convoluted it's it's fairly straightforward as a actual narrative it's just I mean you can argue that the machine and the snake scale and and all of that is a little bit convoluted but it's more like yeah but it's like it's like the movie has stripped out all the stuff that would make that more convoluted in an actual noir I do like that sorry one last thing I do like they recreated the like painstakingly painfully long sequence of man operating machine to get you know when he's like going through all the camera angles when he's scanning through Vegas and everything number seven up till up 40 degrees and it's like how long is this lasting and then you have Harrison Ford with the fucking enhanced machine yeah <laughs> right this has been our episode on Blade Runner thank you very much Matt for, for watching two movies for this <laughs> yeah nobody asked me to but I just knew if I didn't of course it was going to come up when talking about you know when and you would, have, seat... you would kind of have to sit there and go like Ben's just going to like run the conversation on this for, for yeah, a bit yeah I just thought I don't know yeah sounds good I really probably should have watched it before and I was like oh, I could probably squeeze it in you know it's a Saturday night uh, Friday night whatever I can watch Blade Runner cool so next week if you haven't figured it out based on Matt's hint earlier we are covering Martin says he's the king of comedy the joker can we not talk about joker next week we can absolutely not talk about joker next week you don't need to it's a worse version of king of comedy i got a trailer for joker after something on netflix the other day and i it was the scene of like him reaching through the bars to make bruce smile whatever it was and i was like i, I fucking I, hate that scene <laughs> But yeah, that's next week. We're, we're leaving 1982. We're going into 1983. This is our Martin Scorsese pick. Controversial or not, you decide. There are obviously lots of Scorsese movies. We're not doing the 70s, so you don't get to... I mean, we could have covered Raging Bull. We could have. Raging Bull is very good. But we didn't cover Raging Bull. So yeah, so Matthew, <laughs> as always, will there be movies? Well, are there ever movies? You know, there were, in fact, movies. <laughs> Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. And I did it for-